Would you please pray with me? Almighty God, your word comforts and challenges us. It inspires and humbles us. Help us now to put aside all that hardens our hearts so that we may be able to ponder you with wonder and sensitivity. Amen. The second lesson from scripture this morning comes from 1 Kings. I will read chapter 19, verses 9 through 18. Listen now for the word of the Lord. At that place, he came to a cave and spent the night there. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. He said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice to him that said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. Then the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael as king over Aram. Also you shall anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And you shall anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, as prophet in your place. Whoever escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall kill. And whoever escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall kill. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. This is the word of the Lord. Elijah seems a different person from the man he was in the previous chapter. In that chapter of 1 Kings, Elijah was engaged in a dramatic showdown with the 450 prophets of Baal, whom the Queen Jezebel worshipped. If you recall, in that story, Elijah confidently proposed a competition between all of them and himself, the only prophet of Yahweh left in Israel. 
He proposed that they build two altars and prepare a sacrifice of bull upon each altar and then call upon their respective gods to set the altars on fire. They would call upon Baal and he would call upon Yahweh. If you recall, the prophets of Baal went first and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, crying, O Baal, answer us. There was no answer. When it was Elijah's turn, he built an altar and placed pieces of bull on it. He even poured water on the offering and the wood, soaking things so much that water dripped down and ran down around the altar. Then he said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your bidding. Answer me, O Lord, so that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell from heaven and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, and the stones. And when the Israelites saw this, their allegiance returned to Yahweh. And when Elijah commanded them to seize the prophets of Baal, they did. And he killed all 450 prophets of Baal. You can imagine how angry Queen Jezebel was when she learned this news. Receiving word that the queen planned to retaliate and kill him, Elijah is on the run. For 40 days and 40 nights, Elijah has been running. And now he is hiding in a cave on Mount Horeb, which is also known as Mount Sinai. It's the place where the Lord revealed the law to Moses. This is the point in the story where our second scripture lesson picks up. There on Mount Sinai, God asks Elijah, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah responds that he had been a zealous prophet, but now, since he is the last prophet left and is being hunted, he is hiding in the cave. God tells him to go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord because God is about to pass by and he wouldn't want to miss out. He wouldn't want to miss God's full presence. What happens next is remarkable, really, given how starkly it contrasts with the way God had made God's self present earlier. In that great public showdown earlier, God had impressively made God's self known in the fire that was sent down from the heavens and that consumed the altar and everything on it. Now, the story tells us there was a great wind, followed by an earthquake, followed by fire, and God was not in any of these. Instead, God was in the sheer silence that followed. What do we make of this? None of us can be sure. Those of us who savor silence have likely just appreciated this scene in the Bible. 
Nevertheless, it is in curious contrast with what preceded it. In his book entitled, The Disappearance of God, biblical scholar Richard Elliott Friedman notices that over time, God gradually becomes hidden in the Hebrew Bible. The Bible begins, he writes, with a world in which God is actively and visibly involved, but it doesn't end that way. Gradually, over the course of the Hebrew Bible, God appears less and less to humans, even speaks less and less. Miracles, angels, and all other signs of divine presence become rarer and finally cease. In the early stories of Genesis, God is the primary actor and controller. God alone creates the universe. God personally breathes life into the first human and personally plants the Garden of Eden and personally walks in the garden as, has, and has conversation with the humans. The Hebrew Bible is an account of how God relates to human beings, in particular the people of Israel. Friedman observes that as humankind expands, the balance of control over human affairs shifts, while the visible presence of God diminishes. God apparently cedes more and more of the visible control of human affairs to human beings. One of the things that significantly shifts the balance is the establishment of the monarchy in Israel. When it came to the question of whether Israel should be ruled by kings, the Bible depicts great ambivalence. What would happen, after all, if a people who believe they're ruled by the Creator were to be ruled by human rulers? In the story of Elijah, we see how difficult it is for divine rule and human rule to coexist. In this very story, we see God's presence recede from a magnificent display of fire to the sound of sheer silence. Simultaneously, we see God ceding more and more of the visible control of human affairs to human beings. Rather than actively and directly intervening in Israel's affairs, God tells Elijah to anoint two new kings and to appoint a prophet, Elisha, as a successor to himself. We are familiar with other voices in the Hebrew Bible that express so sensitively the felt experience of God's hiddenness or disappearance. The prophet Isaiah says, where is he? What a strange thing to hear a prophet say. The psalmist asks, why do you stand so far off? These voices speak acutely of what it feels like when God gives no visible signs of presence and instead leaves the people to face their troubles on their own. I have been trying recently to understand better the perspectives of people who, unlike Isaiah and the psalmist, do not understand God to exist. 
and therefore take a more humanist view of life and the world. One book that presents a humanist view more accessibly and sensitively is co-written by father and son, Tony and Bart Campolo. You may be familiar with one or both of their names. Tony Campolo is a prominent evangelical Christian who taught sociology at Eastern University, a Christian university not too far from here, as well as at University of Pennsylvania. His son, Bart Campolo, was also an evangelical Christian who devoted his life to boldly proclaiming the good news of God's salvation through faith with a plea for social justice until he deconverted and became a humanist chaplain. Together, they wrote the book, Why I Left, Why I Stayed. It is a conversation between a father and son who are trying to understand one another and to be understood. They each tell their own stories, and we find in them how differently they experienced the presence of God. Bart Campolo tells the story of his deconversion. And in telling the story, he explains that he didn't choose not to believe God in God. He just stopped believing. Slowly but surely, he wrote, that benevolent presence that once seemed absolutely real to me felt like an imaginary friend instead. I never turned my back on God. He disappeared before my eyes. End of quote. While God's felt presence slowly receded from his life, a belief in humanism took its place. His father, Tony Campolo, has lived all his life conscious of God's abiding presence. That is why, understandably, it is so difficult for him to imagine his son living without this presence. Tony tells a story about a time when in teaching, he asked his senior seminar students at University of Pennsylvania what they most wanted out of life. One of his students blurted out, I want to become human, fully human. What do you mean by human? Campolo inquired. Can you describe the traits of humanness? Can you give me some idea of what it is you want to achieve? And the student rattled off traits like being infinitely loving, perfectly sensitive, totally aware, completely empathetic, and endlessly forgiving. Campolo probed the student's response further. You know something of love, something of empathy, something of forgiveness. Even if you possess these traits to a very limited degree, you obtained them somehow. Were you born with them? The limited humanity in your personhood? Where did it come from? What was its source? Knowing that he was in a sociology class, the student answered that the qualities of humanness that he possessed were obtained by the process of socialization. Socialization, he had learned back in his introductory sociology course, is 
the process whereby Homo sapiens become human. Pointing out the problem, however, the student went, out to, went on to say, I feel that society is dehumanizing me. Unable to resist this moment for evangelism, even in a classroom at UPenn, Tony Campola said, what I'm trying to tell you is that the traits of humanness are gained only by interacting with those people who possess them. If you, if you have an intimate and sustained relationship with somebody who is very loving, you will become loving too. The student went on to say, that's terrible. You're telling me that if I want to be fully human, if I want to be totally an actualized person that Abraham Maslow wants me to be, then I need to have a relationship with somebody who is all of those things already. But don't you understand? I don't know anybody like that. I doubt there is anybody like that. Well, anyone who knows Tony Campolo would know that he would unapologetically say, yes, there is. His name is Jesus. The Jesus described in the New Testament wants to be personally related to you, and he wants you to allow him to transform you into his likeness. Knowing that professors at UPenn do not usually speak like this in class, Tony Campolo was surprised to find that the young man and the other students were fascinated. They had never heard about a Jesus who humanizes. What they called being human was really being Christ-like. Furthermore, it was really being God-like. It is what the Apostle Paul meant when he encouraged people to imitate him as he imitates Christ, who is the Son of God and therefore is the image of God. Having an aha moment, one of the other students in the class said, we need a new way of talking about Jesus. Jesus is God because he is fully human not in spite of his humanness. When I was a kid growing up in Sunday school, she said, it seemed weird to me that God could be a man. But if I follow what you are saying, it is the most logical thing in the world. Jesus was God because he was fully human and he's fully human because he was God. Are you tracking their theological conversation? As I was reading it, I felt as though I was overhearing it, and fortunately, I could read it more than once. As people were figuring out who Jesus was, they began to call him Son of God. In speaking about himself, however, Jesus constantly called himself Son of Man. In Jesus... The Gospels picture the divine in human form as never before. So different from divine manifestations of fire falling from the sky. Jesus humanizes God. And when Jesus too ascends and disappears from our view, once again people are anointed. This time not as kings and prophets, but as members of a church the body of Christ, 
on earth. As the body of Christ, we are to the world a visible witness of God's presence. The more fully human we become, the more loving, sensitive, aware, empathetic, and forgiving, the more the world will see and feel God's full presence. Amen.